Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and paying my respects to the elders past and present of the Ngunnawal people. Um, this is the start of a new series of public lectures hosted by the ANU Gender Institute and I hope they're going to bring together a lot of people from around the campus, from a wide range of disciplinary backgrounds and from outside, those who've got long-standing interests in feminist theory as well as those who just want to know more. Um, and I think this is very much in line with the ethos of the Gender Institute, which reaches right across the campus in, and into the wider public indeed, to bring together a diverse range of interests in gender questions and in gender politics. Now, feminist theory no doubt begins in attempts to give systemic accounts of the nature of women's oppression and the wrong that it constitutes. And in given discursive form to women's claims to equality, Many of the key texts of feminism pointed to the very faulty forms of logic that maintain masculine privilege, and often they did so by invoking a promise of a universal equality that might have been carried by following sounder principles of reasoning. Now, over time, this message has continued to have great salience, but more complex analyses of gender relations in situated and diverse contexts have also been developed. And indeed, the very nature of oppression, agency, victimhood, and power have become increasingly contested questions, together with thoughts about the way in which gender intersects with other vectors of disadvantage. So feminist theory inherits these tensions, and it flourishes, I think, today as a very vibrant area of research, though it still too often battles with the idea that this is only of interest to women, which I think is something we have to keep uh, struggling against. Now, my interest in putting together this series is partly to think about how feminist theory and its critical questions have become part of the texture of contemporary thought, and that's why the title Feminist Theory Now has suggested itself. But I want to go back for a moment to a report that Anne Curthoys produced in 1998 for the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. And Anne Curthoys identified what she uh, thought was a typical sequence of development for feminist scholarship. Um, first, feminist theory, she suggests, uh, offers a critique of masculinist assumptions and biases it gives rise to the development of research which includes the study of women in the concerns of the discipline. And this in turn motivates extensive questioning of existing disciplinary paradigms, leading to the exploration of new conceptual and theoretical frameworks. Now, Anne Curthos, I'm sure, would be the first to admit this isn't a linear back, uh, process, but something that goes back and forwards all the time. And it includes moments of fracture and rupture, 
where not only the existing disciplinary paradigms can no longer contain what feminist scholarship has uh, uncovered, but feminist theory itself um, comes to question its own insights, its own premises, its own ways of, of conducting itself. And so disciplinary challenges within feminist theory and in the way that theory impacts other disciplines will be a vital theme for this series. And I just want to illustrate that very briefly. In the foreword to her wonderful 2013 book, Who Are Bodies Whose Properties, our speaker for this evening, Anne Phillips, tells us that some of the work was pursued on a visit to the ANU Research School of Social Sciences in 2009. And she notes that while her host, John Dreisick, had expected me to write on democracy, he very tolerantly accepted me writing about bodies instead. Now, I'm not at all sure that this isn't a tongue-in-cheek uh, comment, given that the book spells out how, how far our ability to think of others as our equals is bound up with our bodies, such that deep threats to democratic equality follow from certain ways of treating bodies. And so the question about what equality might mean for us all, all of us bodies here today, is revised from another angle. It's a twist on democratic theory that complicates many taken-for-granted starting points and assumptions and presupposed oppositions. And as such, I think it exemplifies some of what feminist theory now can offer. And so I'm really delighted that the first in this series will be presented by Anne Phillips, who is once again a visitor here um, to RSSS from the London School of Economics. Professor Anne Phillips was director of the uh, LSE Gender Institute for, until September 2004, and she's presently the professor of political and gender theory there, as well as the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science in the Department of Government at the LSE. She's a leading figure in feminist political theory, and she's done very important work on bodies and properties, some of which we'll hear this evening, as well as democracy and representation, equality, multiculturalism, and difference, or perhaps these entwined together in, in new and interesting ways. Much of her work, I think, can be read as challenging the narrowness of contemporary liberal theory, often enriching it substantively with the insights of feminist theory. So please join me this evening in welcoming Professor Anne Phillips. So thanks, uh, thanks very much, Fiona, for that introduction, and uh, it's uh, it's a great pleasure to be here giving the first in this year's series of uh, uh, lectures in feminist theory to feminist theories. Now, um, I want to uh, talk about an issue that um, has figured in many ways over many debates in feminist theory, uh, which is broadly what are the possibilities and the limits of thinking of our bodies as property, as something that we own. Um, the title of the talk, as, as of the, uh, the book that Fiona just mentioned, is, is meant to echo the, uh, the famous uh, feminist classic, uh, Our Bodies, Ourselves. And I'm, I'm interested in two related questions. What, if anything, is problematic about thinking about our relationship to our bodies as one of ownership, as one of property? And what, if anything, is problematic in using our bodies as things that we can trade? Uh, there are sort of, I think, two influences that have sort of entered into my thinking about this. The first kind of slightly surprised me as it became clearer to me when I was working on the project. The first was Marxism, which is my, in fact, my initial 
uh, intellectual heritage before I discovered the women's movement. And Marxism provides a critique of commodification, um, which has a number of elements. I mean, one of which is, is that the, the things that we initially value because of their uses increasingly come to be valued in terms of their exchange value. Um, and the other, the other that's particularly uh, relevant to this is that the way people come to be treated and indeed the way people come to treat themselves increasingly is as commodities, that is, as things that can be bought and sold on the market. Um, and then the, the way this can enter into our very sense of ourselves, uh, leading us to think of ourselves as self-owners. And I have, I have a quote in the, sort of the early part of the book, which is, um, which is from a, a left libertarian political theorist called Jonathan Kwong, who says, uh, because you own yourself and your labor, you must have the right to use your body and labor in any way you see fit, consistent with the rights of others. So if you want to sell your sexual services, you have a right to do so. If you want to sell your organs, you should be free to do so. If you want to take recreational drugs, it's your mind and body to do, as, to do with as you see fit. Now, obviously, that's a kind of... I mean, that's a very strong claim about our rights to, uh, to control our own destiny, right? I mean, it's a kind of... It's a claim about... Um, ownership here very much is representing control. So the fact that it's myself and my body enables me to determine what I do. But to me, that kind of comment resonates very much with uh, the critique that uh, George Lukács, for example, developed in the 1920s, when he came to see the representation of people as owners of themselves as a final stage in that process of commodification. So the point where, to quote him, the commodity relation stamps its imprint on the whole consciousness of man. His qualities and abilities are no longer an organic part of his personality. They are things which he can own and dispose of, like the various objects of the external world. Um, now, I, I don't any longer define myself as a Marxist. It's come to mean so many different things that um, uh, that doesn't really work for me, and the only ism I'm now happy to sign up to is, uh, is feminism. But that's certainly been one part of my influence, the influence on my thinking about these issues about bodies and property. The other influence, of course, is feminism. This is both because feminists have tended to criticise the kind of mind-body dualism that is at work in that idea of me, somehow something separate from my body, owning this thing called my body. Um, but also because feminism, or at least an important strand of feminism, has criticised ways of thinking about autonomy as matters of self-protection and self-control. Uh, so there's an important strand of feminism which kind of criticises that as, as a kind of representing us as kind of like, in a sense, we get our freedom by keeping others and other influences away from us, by kind of building barriers around ourselves. Um, and in, in doing so, that strand of feminism has also tended to be critical of the metaphors of property. If you think of the self as embodied, right, I mean, if you criticise the mind-body dualism and you think of ourselves as embodied, if you think of us as living in the world, engaging with others, being defined and pigeonholed by others through the bodies in which we exist in the world, 
then thinking of a kind of separate self that somehow inhabits the body, or thinking of the body as this kind of housing that kind of you know, holds the real you, uh, just seems deeply problematic. And if you challenge ideals of autonomy that represent freedom as independence from others, uh, if you think, as many feminists do, um, that we're enmeshed in relations of mutual dependence um, and that not all dependency is a bad thing, some of it is, but not all of it. If you think along those lines, then you're, you're much less likely uh, to warm to uses of the property language that suggest us as property owners, as kind of building walls around our property in order to protect ourselves and establish our control. So these are some of the influences that have helped shape my thinking about body ownership. But of course, what makes the issues challenging <laughs> is that things are never as simple as that. Um, there also seem very good radical and feminist reasons to want to claim bodies as property. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, an article by um, Rosalind Pachesky, for example, written in the mid-1990s, that stresses the, the crucial importance of being able to claim one's body as one's own in 18th and 19th century slave writings. Um, and in that article, she called for a feminist revisioning of property as something that could become a form of empowerment. Uh, in uh, feminist debates about commercial surrogacy, where there's been almost as much disagreement among feminists as there has been about prostitution, those supporting commercial surrogacy uh, sometimes make the point that it's about time women got paid for doing things that they've been expected to, to do for nothing for millennia. And they've also argued, and, and I tend to agree with them here, that it's a hostage to fortune to represent women as having some kind of special sort of relationship to their bodies um, as part of a kind of critique of commercial surrogacy and that this feeds into all kinds of sentimental stereotypes that we would do better to not to endorse. And even that critique of mind-body dualism that I started off with isn't so entirely helpful in the end, because one of the things that happens when you start thinking of the self as embodied rather than as a me that somehow happens to inhabit a body, once you start thinking of the self as embodied, you come to realise, of course, that we involve our bodies in everything we do. I mean, I, I can't give this lecture without using my body. And if I were being paid a great deal of money for it, which I'm, I'm not, <laughs> um, you know, you might well say that I'm kind of prostituting my body as well as my mind and giving it. If the self is embodied, that is, I mean, if we reject certain forms of mind-body dualism, we go, we're going to lose the kind of the easy basis for differentiating between the kinds of practices in which we seem to be selling the use of our body and the kinds of practices in which we see ourselves as selling the use of our talents or skills. You can't so easily say, for example, that the problem with sex work or commercial surrogacy uh, is that these involve selling the use of the body. Um, since we take the body with us in any form of, any form of employment, any form of contract, um, we sell the use of our bodies in any kind of paid work. Now, you might modify the claim you might say, well, what's wrong with sex work and commercial surrogacy is that in, in these practices, the body is the whole point, right? Whereas in many of the other ways in which we you know, sell the use of our bodies, it's much more incidental. And indeed, Carol Pateman, 
made some such suggestion in her, her book, The Sexual Contract. But as, as Martha Nussbaum has pointed out, the body is the whole point uh, in activities like being a ballet dancer or, um, or a professional athlete. And we don't normally see those as activities in which it's problematic that somebody might be selling the use of their body. I'm still, still on complications here. Uh, and the final, the final complication I want to raise relates to what, uh, what Fiona has already talked about, which is the agency issue. Um, you might say that what's wrong with markets in bodies, and I'm, I'm not thinking here just about sex work and commercial surrogacy, but, but the mostly, mostly illegal but still thriving markets in body parts, uh, for example, in, in kidneys, you might say what's wrong with, with those kinds of markets is that people are being driven to these by poverty. Uh, so they're not really choosing to engage in these. So you might develop a critique of them which is based on the fact that, that people aren't freely choosing. Um, or you might say, um, and in relation specifically to commercial surrogacy, you might say that a woman who agrees to bear a child for somebody else and, and to, to give up the baby at the end of the pregnancy can't really know at the point at which she agrees the contract how she is going to feel about her relationship to that baby once the pregnancy is over, which again would be a kind of argument in which you'd be saying, well, the problem with this is that, is that people are kind of, in a sense, they're, they're making choices that aren't kind of really informed choices, that can't be kind of fully informed choices. So these would all be arguments in which you'd be kind of, you'd be using the problem of agency in order to raise certain kinds of issues about particular ways in which we might be trading in the use of our bodies. Uh, you might not, um, uh, you know, you, so, you know, you might point to the woman in, uh, in desperate poverty and debt who can see no other way of financing her child's operation except to sell a kidney, right, which is the kind of story that you've, you, you hear very often um, uh, in relation to... Um, uh, analyses of the, the trading organs, or the woman who's become dependent on drugs and has no other way of financing her, her dependency except through working as a sex worker. So all of these would be kind of examples of, in a sense, ways in which we could say there's a problem here, there's something really problematic about these practices, but you'd be doing it in terms of um, uh, the sense of, of, of people having people in a sense being forced into these, these activities, having no real choice given the economic circumstances. Now I think sometimes these claims are indeed true um, and uh, you know, there's, particularly in the trade in organs there's a lot of trickery and deception um, but one of the things that has characterised a lot of recent feminist theorising is a kind of um, a growing sensitivity to issues about agency and a kind of lessening enthusiasm for employing the kind of argument that seems to represent women as, as victims who don't really know what they're doing. So just, just a kind of quick uh, detour here to some contemporary debates about multiculturalism. In Europe today, um, there are all kinds of punitive uh, moves to regulate Muslim minorities, and very typically these are these are kind of highly gender specific, like uh, clothing bans uh, that regulate the public wearing of headscarves or niqabs, 
uh, or the so-called burqa. Uh, so not just regulating things like whether women should be allowed to teach in primary schools if they're wearing a full face covering, which you know you might quite reasonably say, well, there's something slightly problematic about that. But not just that, but you know, sort of laws like the the laws in in France seeking to prevent women from simply walking down a public street uh, dressed in um, what is regarded as overly restrictive uh, clothing. Now, the kind of the, the moves are defended in all kinds of ways, but they're typically defended in the name of gender equality. Um, women, uh, it is said, are being coerced by their fathers, husbands, brothers, men in their community... Uh, to wear deeply sexist, restrictive clothing. And some strands of feminism have supported these bans uh, on the not, of course, (laughs) implausible grounds uh, that this kind of clothing has its origins in patriarchal norms about women's sexuality and that at least some of the girls and women are being coerced. Uh, Other strands of feminism, and this is more where I position myself, have taken issue with the assumption that the girls and women are simply victims of brainwashing. And indeed, um, uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, uh, those Muslim girls and women in contemporary Europe are most likely to adopt more restrictive forms of, uh, of clothing, either are converts to Islam or are doing it very much against the advice of their parents and, uh, and if uh, its relevant husbands. From that perspective, it seems important not to fall back on claims about women being brainwashed, doing things when they don't really know what they're doing, being forced into choices that aren't really their choices. Um, you know, that we, we should, I think, be very careful not to impose our ideas of what's right on people who, who may have their own very strong reasons for choosing uh, what they're choosing. So, this is all kind of preamble in a sense. This is where, this is where I'm coming from. Um, I continue to think there's something particularly problematic, both about viewing our relationship to our bodies as one of property, as one of ownership, um, as if it's kind of, you know, as if our relationship to our bodies is sort of no different from our relationship to a kind of car or a house that we might own. And I continue to think there's something particularly problematic about making our bodies available for rent or for sale. But I don't want to argue (laughs) that women who in some sense trade in their bodies don't know what they're doing, that they're kind of like, you know, either um, forced into it by circumstances, sometimes they are, but, you know, don't want to assume that that's always the case. I don't think we can easily draw a line between uh, sales that involve the body and those that don't because of my points about what actually happens when you think about selves as embodied. And I can see some point in the argument made by some feminists to the effect that claiming our bodies as property uh, can provide, in some contexts, a route to empowerment. So, so that's, that's the kind of context in which I'm trying to sort of think about these issues. And I, I want to give you, um, this will be very abbreviated, but I want to give you three arguments as to why Nonetheless, with all of these complications and nuances, uh, we should think of it problematic to think about our bodies as our property. Now, the first is simply that uh, I just want to say that the fact that there's a kind of continuum 
between being paid to do something when the body with which you do it is in some sense incidental, which is the case with many, many of the activities in which we're kind of, we receive money for doing something and the body is an incidental feature. The fact that there's a continuum between that and being paid to do something when the body has become the whole or pretty much the whole point. The fact that there's a continuum doesn't mean that we have no basis for criticizing what's positioned on the outer edge. I think it's a kind of, it's, it's a mistake that people very often make. If they can show that there's kind of, you know, that, that sort of, that there is a kind of continuum, somehow we lose the kind of the capacity. If you can show that there's a continuum and you don't mind things on one end of the continuum, somehow you lose the capacity to criticizing things on the other end of the continuum. And that seems to me to be a, a problematic assumption. I'm sort of strongly influenced in my thinking here by the work of Carol Pateman, who I already mentioned, whose, um, whose work on the sexual contract had quite a profound impact on my thinking. And one of the things that I take from Pateman is that choice does not legitimate everything. We don't have to question people's agency. Um, in fact, I think the better assumption is to presume that everyone has agency. You know, obviously, people are... Um, more or less well-informed, uh, more or less constrained by circumstances, face very different kind of combinations of opportunities. Unquestionably, there are huge differences between us and, you know, and you know, across the world, across different kind of contexts in that sense. But I think um, the best assumption, nonetheless, is to regard the vast majority of us as thinking agents who are making a choice. The point is, not that sometimes we're forced into doing things, of course we are sometimes, but the point is that some of the things we choose are themselves about subordination. And, the, and that subordination doesn't go away just because we made a choice. All forms of wage labour involve, to some extent, subordination to an employer's authority. You can see the strains of uh, the influence of Marxism again here. Um, you give up the authority to decide for yourself uh, when you turn up, what you do, uh, when you stop. Um, you can't do the job you've agreed to do without, in some sense, handing authority over your body to somebody else. Now, in many cases, that regulation of our bodies is kind of pretty minimal. I mean, it's clearly much more extensive and intrusive in activities to which the body is central, so sex work and commercial surrogacy, but also, as Martha Nussbaum reminds us, uh, ballet dancing, professional athletes. I mean, if you, if you work in these areas, there's a huge amount of kind of, you know, intrusive control of what you can and can't do with your bodies. Um, but the vulnerability that's associated with even a kind of temporary loss of authority over our bodies remains, and I think should be more, more widely acknowledged, even in activities to which the body is more incidental. Um, so it's not that selling sex or one's capacity to bear a child is so entirely distinct from all other forms of paid employment. And I think one of the lessons, in fact, that, that we ought to try to take from the uh, analysis of the trade in what you might call more intimate uh, bodily services 
is the need to, to focus more closely on the embodied experience and the risks of all paid labour. Uh, anyone agreeing to work for somebody else in whatever sphere of employment makes herself vulnerable to a loss of personal autonomy. And she experiences this vulnerability through her body. Uh, in, in some areas of employment, the body, bodily experience is so negligible we barely notice it. Uh, in others, it may pose quite significant issues regarding health and safety conditions. Um, in others still, the regulation of the body and the management of the emotions uh, reaches what we should consider unacceptable levels. I mean, I think, it, I mean I'm particularly, uh, I think it's particularly striking in relation to uh, commercial surrogacy agencies, the extraordinary uh, techniques that the agencies often develop in order to ensure that there will be a nice, easy handover at the end of the pregnancy, in order to kind of minimise the possibility of the surrogates bonding with the, with the baby. Um, and that kind of management, both of body and emotions, uh, in, in those contexts, I think, reaches what, certainly what I would consider unacceptable levels. But I think the... Um, I think this first point that I'm making is that, yes, indeed, there is a continuum. I have no problem at all about accepting that there's a continuum and that at some, at some parts of the continuum, the degree of regulation that's going on is kind of, as I say, is, is almost so negligible we barely notice it. But the fact that there's a continuum is not itself a kind of reason against uh, criticising those points at which the regulation and the control and the management of our bodies and emotions becomes particularly, um, uh, particularly controlling. So that's one part of my argument. I also want to make a second argument that revolves around the fact that we all have bodies. And uh, what I see as the uh, implication of this, obviously rather banal fact, for equality Bodies remind us of our shared vulnerability. Uh, they alert us to the common experience that you know, every, every human being has of living as embodied beings in the same world. So treating our bodies as if they are things, as if there's no difference between the body and, I don't know, your book, your bicycle, your car, your house potentially blocks this very important process, which, which I see as kind of as a, a particularly significant part of what actually creates our sense of uh, equality with other human beings. Now, I should say, this, this move, which is quite, a, um, it's quite a frequent move in contemporary feminist theory, it's also a pretty contested one. Um, and this is perhaps one of the areas we can, uh, we can talk about in the discussion. Um, I mean, I've said that uh, feminism tends to challenge mind-body dualism and stresses the fact that we, uh, uh, we exist in the world and through our bodies, that people relate to us or pigeonhole us uh, on the basis of our bodies and that we relate to ourselves in, in this way. Now, one of the things that I take from that is that when people say um, things like, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white. Um, what matters is that we are all human beings. That there's something about that, I mean, obviously very powerful ethical ideal, but there's, there's still something about it, that kind of, that reference to this disembodied 
humanity, which exists in no particular kind of form, that strikes me as, as problematic. Bodies matter, and I think the bodies that we share, I mean the bodies that we all have, <laughs> uh, play an important part in generating ideas of equality. When the human is thought of in terms of um, you know, some kind of disembodied rationality or capacity for conscious choice, when we think that these are the things that really characterize what it is to be human, uh, there's a very real risk that those who don't seem rational enough or don't have enough of this cognitive capacity will not be regarded as qualifying. And in fact, there's quite a, quite a large strand of contemporary uh, political theorizing uh, that argues that... Um, uh, that, that babies or those in comas um, actually don't qualify as persons. I mean, mostly people don't any longer say they're not human, right? I mean, we all recognize that they're human. But in terms of what really matters, which is whether you're a person or not, there's quite a large strand of contemporary political theorizing uh, that, that now kind of uh, um, questions their, uh, the sense in which they can count as persons. Focusing on the body, it seems to me, compared with that, promises a much more kind of secure basis for commonality. Bodies are more grounded in daily reality, less open to exclusionary hierarchies. And there's quite a lot of evidence that people find it harder um, to treat others as less than or other than human when they have to engage with them as embodied beings. Um, so, uh, for example, there's, there's very interesting... Um, uh, material from interviews with people who have been past participants in genocidal killings, uh, people, for example, involved in the Rwanda massacres, who um, sometimes describe the moment of eye contact with the person that they're about to kill, and that moment of realising that this being that they're going to kill isn't a kind of a cockroach or a subhuman being, but actually is human. Uh, I think those, those fragile moments of recognising oneself in the other are very typically physical in their nature. I think it's, it's things like, you know, the kind of, I don't know, the um, things like kind of seeing someone stoop in a way that reminds you of your father or kind of making eye contact with somebody. I think these are very important sort of moments in establishing our kind of sense of a kind of common humanity. So... I'm kind of stressing the point, bodies matter. But here, too, there are difficulties, and I think it's one of the features of feminist theory, <laughs> is that there is no kind of unity in feminist theory because the issues that we're dealing with are complex, um, and there are many, many different strands and debated positions. The body, in some ways, is as abstract as the mind. Talking about the body, <laughs> in some ways, is just as abstract as talking about the mind. And whatever we may tell ourselves about all bodies sharing the same needs and experiencing the same vulnerabilities, the fact is that we continue to care more about some of those bodies and some of those needs than about others. So I think the body is indeed sometimes what enables us to see beyond the stereotypes and the suspicions to a kind of shared humanity. But the body is also what kind of evokes you know, the almost visceral disgust that feeds misogyny and racism and you know, so many hatreds of the other. And of course, failing to register that kind of double dynamic can lead to a kind of sentimentalism. In recent feminist theory, uh, Judith Butler has been one of those 
whose work has come to focus more and more on the precariousness of life and the vulnerability of the body. So in a move very, very similar to what, what I'm suggesting at the moment. And she represents this as potentially enabling us to see one another as equals. At least that's how I understand uh, the comment she makes at one point that, quote, the recognition of shared precariousness introduces strong normative commitments of equality. Uh, but this has laid her open to criticisms that she's moved from a kind of political to a much more exclusively uh, ethical register. And in uh, Bonnie Honig's uh, recent reading of her work, uh, she's said to give us, quote, a universal humanist ethics of lamentation in which the focus is on suffering. Now, I'm not myself an expert on this, and in fact, Fiona has written some very, very interesting work about this, which is sort of much, much better in terms of working out to what extent that is a fair criticism of Butler, which I don't think it is. But I think the kind of the, the underlying point does seem to me to ring true that, you know, in focusing on the body, this directs us towards needs, vulnerabilities, suffering, and potentially takes you again in the direction of thinking of people as victims rather than agents in a way that's potentially problematic. So, I mean... So what, I, what I'm saying there, that this second argument of mine, which is about the significance of the body as, in a sense, what enables us to see one another as equals, this is not without its complications, right? And there's a lot of area for kind of like, you know, qualification here. And, and indeed, uh, I mean, I've become rather more anxious about this second argument just in the short period since completing the book and kind of giving this lecture. Um, <laughs> But I still think that we can say with some real conviction that the point at which some people's bodies become the means to solve the problems of or patch up the difficulties of other people's bodies is definitely a moment at which we're going to face really serious difficulties about continuing to think about one another as equals. And I think this is very much what lies at the heart of the distinction that people very often uh, make between donation of the use of your body, which is, which is very widely regarded as, as a good, positive thing, and sale. So for in relation to, uh, well, in relation to um, organs, human organs, um, I mean, the, the, uh, the trade, the selling of kidneys, say, is almost universally banned, not, not entirely, but almost universally banned. But the kind of the, those extraordinary individuals who actually volunteer to donate a, a spare kidney, in some cases to complete strangers, I mean, that's an extraordinary act, and we tend to kind of, we regard that as very different. And I think part of what's going on there is that in one case, what you have is something that in a sense, almost encourages us to, to deny the equality between the, the source and the recipient. And in another case, what you have is a relationship which actually which brings us into a much kind of closer sense of, of uh, equality with one another. So if you think of the, uh, the difference between the ways we relate to one another in the context of donation, so this stranger donating blood marrow or a kidney or the relative offering to bear a child for an infertile um, sister or cousin or just friend. Um, <coughs> you think of the contrast between that and the ways we might relate to the other in the context of a sale. It seems to me that donation 
encourages us to think much more explicitly about our equality. So we think about, if you were the recipient of somebody donating you a kidney, you know, you would, you would think, you know, would I have the generosity to behave in the same kind of way if I'd been someone who was fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, two, um, you know, fully functioning kidneys? I mean, you would, you would be thinking about that kind of, that context, um, you know, had things been different, would we have been equally generous? Whereas I think a market in these things, in fact, I don't just think it, it's something that's confirmed by uh, some of the evidence that has been gathered from uh, talking to people um, who, who purchase um, either the services or the things. Um, the market relieves the purchasers of the obligation to think themselves into the seller's shoes. So there's a way in which the kind of it, it makes it it makes it very hard for the body to function in that way, which I'm kind of tentatively, uh, with some qualifications suggesting, um, provides a basis for us thinking of one another as equals. And then all having bodies also functions in a third and what might seem uh, a much more standard sense, in that it highlights the uh, the inequality that is an inescapable component in markets that depend centrally on the body. Now, my argument here is not just a version of the kind of the idea of people being driven to it by poverty. Um, I, mean, I mean, inequality is obviously a feature of many markets. You know, we, you know, we sell because we don't have enough, we buy because we've got more. Um, but think about it like this. Whatever kind of society we lived in, there would be a social division of labour. If you imagined a society in which there was total social, economic and gender equality, if you could stretch your minds to the kind of point of imagining that, there would still be a social division of labour, right? We'd still have some people would specialise in certain kinds of activities and other people would specialise in others. And in that, in that kind of, you know, ideal world... Um, the kind of the basis of the specialisation would presumably mostly be some kind of difference between us in terms of our preferences or skills or talents. You know, that if you had a, a fear of heights, you know, you wouldn't end up specialising in being a tree surgeon. Um, if you found maths extremely difficult, you know, you wouldn't specialise in being a physicist, right? So, you know, that there would be a division of labour, right? And there'd be some kind of trade between us in order to kind of, like, exchange our services and the various things that we produce. It seems to me that it's, it's very hard... It's very hard to kind of imagine that kind of plausible tale about the different kinds of specialisations that might come into being in this ideal world in relation to something which is simply about the bodies that we have. You know, I mean, if you think about kind of, you know, I, this is an exaggeration, but, you know, kind of anyone with a body can do sex, right? Um, anyone with, with two healthy kidneys can kind of, you know, be a source of, of spare parts. Um, any woman of childbearing age can do pregnancy. As I say, it's all a bit of an exaggeration. But, you know, you know in, in a sense... In those activities where, kind of, in a sense, almost anybody would do, what is it that is leading people to specialise in those kinds of activities rather than others? It's very hard, it seems to me, to tell a plausible tale about why one would choose to be a sex worker, why one would choose to 
become a commercial surrogate, why one would choose to sell a kidney um, outside some notion of inequality. And the, the point I'm making there is that it seems to me there are certain kinds of activities where, in a sense, the inequality is an inescapable part of it. It's, it's not just as it is with, you know, many of our activities, that inequality is part of what leads us to do certain sorts of things. These seem to me to be cases where it's very hard to... Um, I think the argument that I'm making here works best in terms of organ sales, I should say. Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of... It's, uh, it's particularly hard to imagine that somehow people divide up into... You know, some people prefer to live with one kidney and other people prefer to live with two, and so you have a, a social division of labour in which the people who prefer one kidney decide to sell their spare kidney to those who prefer two. I mean, somehow it's, it just seems deeply implausible if there weren't some kind of fundamental inequality driving that trade. It's a bit more plausible to suggest that um, some women enjoy pregnancy, uh, whereas others either can't get pregnant or don't enjoy it at all. So it's slightly more plausible. But I think any kind of study of the, uh, the kind of the increasing commercialization of the surrogacy trade, particularly in the, the Indian surrogacy hostels, um, leads you away from thinking that there's anything about preferences, skills, talents, you know, social choices about the kind of work you want to do uh, that is driving this. Um, and as for uh, sex work, I think it's rather reassuring fantasy to imagine that sex workers have some kind of unusual taste for... Uh, sex with unknown and unchosen partners. So my point here is really is that there are certain specialisations, specialisations that are so detached from who and what you are um, that are basically about you having a body that is needed or wanted by some other person. Um, that it's very hard to explain why some people end up as the sources and other people end up as the clients. Uh, except through some kind of notion of inequality. And that's kind of my, uh, that's my third argument. I think in a world of social, economic, and gender equality, we would still have a division of labor, we'd still have specialization, we'd still do different kinds of jobs. But if there are certain kinds of jobs that you just cannot imagine anyone preferring or choosing to do in that context, then it seems to me those are the kinds of jobs we have to think very seriously about uh, about sort of eliminating and I mean one of the things that people sometimes say to me is so you know so so you know what do you think about kind of cleaning other people's toilets um, and I mean this was one of the things that Gandhi was very strong on I mean he, he thought that we should not live in a world in which anyone should be expected to clean to clean someone else's toilet um, so he, he made a similar kind of argument in a sense about there are certain kinds of activities that you, you cannot imagine people, in a sense, preferring it being their preferred occupation. And that if you can't imagine it being people's preferred occupation, then that's a very clear hint as to these being certain kinds of activities that we should work very hard to think of alternatives to. So just to end, um, just to say, I mean, I think we don't need the idea of property in the body to express what we, what we care about when we say it's my body. I mean, we, we frequently say it's my body. What we care about is bodily integrity. I mean, of course, these are our bodies. <laughs> They're nobody else's. And, of course, it's very important that we have the kind of the, uh, the, the right and the power to stop other people doing things to our bodies. 
I mean, this is the basis for laws against rape and assault. Uh, it's the basis for the right recognized in uh, many jurisdictions to refuse even well-intentioned uh, and life-saving medical treatment um, if it nonetheless offends your religious or other beliefs. And, I mean, also think about this, about why is it that we, uh, we find corporal punishment um, so much more of a problem than locking people up and depriving them of their kind of normal lives for kind of many, many years. Um, there's something there about the sense of, you know, of, of, you know there's something about the, the idea of bodily integrity and the idea that we have the right to stop people doing things to and with our bodies. So I, bodily integrity for sure matters. Uh, the points that I'm making are that framing threats to bodily integrity as if they're, in a sense, trespass on private property, uh, to me, is neither necessary nor helpful in terms of addressing the things that really matter about our notions about it being my body. Um, and I think in thinking through these issues, um, I suppose just, just final, final point, it seems to me that feminist theory is an invaluable, though as I hope I've also indicated, by no means unified voice on these issues. So that kind of in a sense the, the debates that go on within feminist theory, in a sense, provide us with the range of kind of complications and nuances that we need to be able to engage with in order to address, I think, problems that are going to uh, probably increase in terms of the challenges that will face us as more and more things become possible with bodies um, and more and more avenues in which some people's bodies can become the means to patch up the bodies of others. So, uh, so that's really what I what I want to say. Thank you so much for all those rich thoughts, Anne. Um, we can open up to questions now. So we'd like to start. Of course, I've covered my tracks by saying there are lots of complications. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> You've alluded to vulnerability. Yeah. Um, I'd like to take that one step further and go, what difference does it make that we actually die, whereas the cup and the table don't die? Although they do break. Yes. Can you, can you fill in a bit more what you're thinking in saying that? I think the fact that we are mortal is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's... It's an end of consciousness, it's the, um, it leads into religion, spirituality, um, the respect for the body is more than simply a pile of organs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, whereas when the table breaks, you don't have a funeral. Yes. Um, I think it's a significant difference. Well, I, I agree that it's a very significant difference, and in fact, uh, I mean, in one of the, um, I mean, one of the things that's kind of happening in some of the current um, uh, sort of biotechnology around what becomes possible with bodies is that uh, 
there's a lot of talk about how one can almost endlessly extend human life in order to not solve the problem that we die, but kind of make it more and more of a distant future. So um, in ways that seem to me um, to be problematic precisely in some of the ways that I've been talking about, because you know, in order to do that, that would be something that would become available to some people, but never by any means to all people. But also the question of what, what exactly is going on in that inability to accept that at some point we die. So, I mean, we need to be able to accept that at some point we die. Um, so it's an enormously significant thing, but it's also something that we need to be able to learn to accept. But as far as I know, all cultures respect death and respect the body. As in, you know, we don't just leave it on the ground. So yeah, like, yeah. One of the problems with the, the um, Malaysian aeroplane Yes, is that there are no bodies, there are no bodies, yeah. What's happened to all these people, they're loved, they're part of community, you can't just disappear people and and expect no consequences. So, I mean, the, the, the kind of the question of sort of body property also kind of comes up there because it, it's, it tends to be the case, I mean, dead bodies are not seen as the property of anyone, right? So if relative, I mean, relatives... It comes up when there's, when there's a kind of case where um, the medical profession wants to carry out a post-mortem. You don't have the kind of the, the power as a relative to say, that can't be done because that relative, that, you know, my mother's body is my body and I can decide what can be done with it. Um, so the kind of the significance of the body can be and should be detached from the question of who owns that body, right, or kind of... Uh, What's the kind of the, uh, the ownership of it? So I think, I think I want, I mean, I want to kind of share your sense of the significance of bodies and detach that from notions about bodies being things that we, we have a right to own or that, you know, that belong in that property sense to us. Sorry, uh, do you want to come through the follow-on question? Uh, my question was a bit tangential to this topic, so I don't know whether I should open it now. Uh, open it. Yeah, we've got to, no, we've got to follow on here, yeah. so I'll go to Kim. I'll, I'll come through it then. Um, that question really stimulated a yeah. sort of uncertainty or question that I've been feeling through listening to you, and it, and it arose in that notion of bodily integrity, and where do we get that sense of integrity from? What is, what is the source of our identification as humans of and I'm, I'm curious to know because you ended off with that um, remark about people who, who who choose not to have their body um, even supported because of religious reasons. Mm, mm. To what extent have you thought of looking at religious texts or even feminist religious texts that delve into these questions of the body and gender issues as a, another way into framing or rethinking these, these questions? I haven't myself done that, but I think that the, um, I mean, it seems to me there are many resources for thinking about the ways in which the body matters so much to us, but don't require us to engage with the, with, with the ownership or the property model. And I think that, that that would provide an additional kind of discourse that would kind of, would, would very much illustrate that. Christine. Yeah, uh, thanks for the talk. I was, um, I was not quite clear on the third argument you were making. That well, one of the things you appealed to was this idea of in a world that was an equal world, 
whether or not people could be conceived as preferring this mm -hmm. occupation. Um, and I'm not quite sure what world we're supposed to imagine, because there are a lot of preferred occupations that people have, um, only because there's the prospect of inequality, namely that they have the possibility to gain a great deal from doing certain kinds of jobs. So a high flyer on Wall Street probably wouldn't prefer that occupation in a perfectly equal world. It doesn't follow from that that in our unequal world that we think that there's something wrong with them choosing that occupation. Right? So usually when people choose occupations, they choose them under a description, not just the type of work, mm -hmm. but also the type of remuneration and the type of life that they can have with a particular society. And it seems to me that um, there are a great many jobs that people wouldn't prefer in, their, in a world of social yes. equality, and that doesn't seem to be a good reason why in an unequal world we think that they shouldn't be able to choose those occupations. Right, well I feel vulnerable to this point because generally my position in debates within political theory is that I don't like thought experiments, right? I mean, I think precisely for these reasons, because the thought experiment abstracts from so much that is relevant to the actual context as the abstracting from, I mean, imagining a world of social, economic, and gender equality, which is such an extraordinary thought experiment, um, <laughs> has precisely this kind of potential weakness. So I feel vulnerable to that comment, which I've sort of, I've sort of tried to struggle to make uh, my, my view that it's nonetheless uh, an important point uh, compatible with my uh, general critique of thought experiments. And I'm, um, I mean, I see it as a kind of, as a way of, as, as a way of kind of getting at the sense in which, I mean, lots of the choices that we make, we make in constrained worlds, which are both either, uh, either we choose to do things because we don't have enough, or as you say, because we want a lot more. Um, but it seems to me that the, there's a way of, of trying to kind of get at a sense in which we could actually prefer to do certain sorts of things. It comes up, I mean, it's, if you look at the kind of the debates about uh, prostitution and sex work, um, very often the kind of the argument winds its way around to the notion that it is mistaken to think that nobody would choose sex work. And I accept that, actually. I mean, I think it's, it's not inconceivable that one would choose sex work. It's very unlikely that you would ever choose to be a streetwalker. Um, but, you know, it's not inconceivable to me that somebody would choose sex work. But once you kind of, once you, once you actually try and strip that down from all the kind of the surrounding constraints, it seems to me it becomes very implausible as an explanation of why people are doing sex work, and it therefore becomes a kind of, it flags up a problem. So, um, I mean, I think, I think there is a kind of, I think there is a difficulty with, with the argument, and I think it's the difficulty with all thought experiments. But it seems to me that it's still, it's still, it's pulling out something, some kind of intuitive truth about certain kinds of activities which you just could not make sense of outside of that context of inequality. One, one way you might change the thought experiment a little bit to make it more congenial is instead of imagining a socially equal world, just imagine that someone's default options are not bad. They're actually pretty good. Right? And so that there's something you couldn't imagine from that position as sort of a guaranteed level of reasonable well-being that they would choose these things. That might be your... Yes, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, maybe I don't need to overstate it quite uh, in terms of the, the stretch of imagination. Um, but I think I wanted to do that because, in a way, it, was, it, uh, it brought home to me, uh, thinking that, how, of course, there would be a social division of labour in that kind of world. Of course there would. There would be all kinds of ways in which we ended up doing different kinds of things and specialising in different kinds of things. So I think it brings, it brings that point home much more clearly than just the default one. But I think, I think that's kind of, yeah, it's a useful suggestion. Question. Um, I'm interested in the modification of infant feeding. Of? Infant feeding. Oh, oh, yes, yeah. To, to breastfeeding. I'm yes. trying to think of um, yeah. how is breastfeeding in exchange of Can only be the woman who does this, can't we? Yeah. That, that's right. And, yeah. and also within that exchange, you made a comment about the relationships in exchange. Well, in effect, that exchange is the relationships. So, respects. Mm -hmm. There's a much more than the feeding of an infant that's going on when something when mm -hmm. that's happening. So you can separate out the feeding of human milk from breastfeeding, which is yes. much more embodied. Yes, yeah. And provides all sorts of other services you could say. So society is advocating women to use their bodies in one respect. There's strand, several strands of feminist thinking which believe that it's too nasty. Um, yes, uh, yes. their right, the woman's right to uh, participate in the paid workforce is uh, diminished by breastfeeding. Um, so it's, it would put payment for that service through right. the whole situation. Right. Because this right. is a situation yes, that yes, in the UK yes. women are being yes. paid financial incentives to breastfeed? Yes. Oh, well, that's a very difficult question, yes. Um, so is, it, is, that, is that so different from, I mean, there are, is that so different from the kind of the, the issues that arise in terms of yeah, no, what I was going to say is it's so different from the issues that arise in terms of uh, subsidising people to stay at home. But of course it is, because you could subsidise a man or a woman to stay at home, whereas this is something where, by definition, it can only be the, can only be the woman who is being subsidised in this way. So it can only be... Um, I don't actually have... I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. That's, it's a, what do you think? Um, Because I mean, the sort of the parallels that I was thinking of, which aren't parallels, are so. There's been this big um, uh, recent shift in uh, in policy in the UK about the uh, whether to pay women for the donation of eggs, uh, the donation of eggs for in vitro fertilization, um, or the donation of eggs for uh, research into um, uh, stem cell research. 
Um, and up until very recently, the position has been you do not pay for this because in doing that you are promoting the commodification of the body and leading in all kinds of directions that are similar to the ones that I'm highlighting. And the recent change has been instead of only being willing to pay expenses uh, for women who agree to donate eggs, which turned out to be rather problematic because it meant that women who were in, in paid employment uh, were able to claim loss of earnings for any time lost, whereas women who weren't in paid employment just got their bus fare to the hospital, um, which sort of all, you know, everyone felt sort of somehow there's something a bit weird about that. So, that, so the, the new policy is that you can get £750 each for the sale of eggs. And uh, it was very kind of, you know, thoughtfully worked through and sort of, uh, I mean, I don't in the end really feel that I can kind of completely uh, oppose it, um, given... It's the, recognition of... it's, the re it's the recognition of some very big commitment that somebody's made. I mean, you know, it's, it's as you say, just... The breastfeeding example is a different one because you're doing it for your own child rather you can than. Choose not to do it, but yes, but you can choose not to do it, right? And uh, yeah. And so, then there's a situation yeah. where there are human milk banks which rely on donated milk. Right. Pay. So that they makes it that makes a much closer comparison. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But then there are commercial companies also relying on yes. donated yes. milk, yes. which yes. then reformulate yes. this into a product which they sell for six dollars right. more. Yes. Yeah. So there's several. Yeah, sounds a very interesting topic. Angela. It's interesting when your lecture is being interpreted by each of us in terms of our work and in thinking of our work. A bit of background. I, I just work on, on, on gender and water. And, um, water and sanitation is a, is a big area. I'm thinking of uh, you know, your, your comments about uh, mind-body separation, and I think that reductionism, reductionism extends into, into separating the body from the body waste as well, and that one of the right. critical, yeah. uh, critical elements is menstrual blood, you know, and, 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 and separating that is a, is a way of uh, not just commodifying, you know, commodification can come not just through that body, mm -hmm. but in a side way, you know, piggybacking onto something, uh, or you know, through through that pathologization, mm -hmm. of, you know, pathologization of the body mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a sick body, which is measured. But I think there is a uh, you know political economy to it. You know, as you said, that the, the, the female body has to be relentlessly working, no matter what, mm -hmm. with the Yes, yeah. You know, listen to your thoughts about body waste as well. You know, and this is British based uh, water aid and you know, mm. international development aid is really pushing this, what they call menstrual hygiene management and portraying <coughs> her well, women as, as deficient, lacking, you know, because they don't use these sanitary napkins. Whereas 
many rural women just don't menstruate as much as the modern Western Arabian women. Mm -hmm. You know, they they are breastfeeding, they're, you know, breastfeeding keeps uh, the menstruation cycle. Yes. So, so I mean, I suppose what I think about in relation to that is that when when one talks about the commodification of the body, I mean, there's there's two aspects. There's kind of thinking about the body as things or parts of the body, you know, as things that you want to kind of somehow, you know, see as detached and separate. There's thinking about the body as thing, and there's thinking about the body as in some sense, saleable commodity, and they're they're kind of they're connected. They're clearly connected. But uh, I mean, you're you're identifying a kind of a way of a particular way of thinking about the body, in which it it's kind of it's it has to be cut off from some of its aspects in order to fit the kind of sanitized notion of what the body is supposed to be. And I think that um, it's it, I mean it's different from the problem that I've started from, which is more to do with 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 sort of direct markets involving the use of one's body and the kind of exchange of the use of one's body for money, but but I do think it has a kind of connection in terms of the uh, the particular ways in which we're coming to think about bodies and the, the range of ways in which we can think about bodies. So uh, yeah. Margaret. Thank you, Anne. I found that very compelling, and I suppose I wanted to pursue a little bit further the idea of the body ending at the edges of the skin. Um, yes. I'm sort of wondering in some ways how you situate the analysis that you've given uh, today uh, in relationship to um, the compelling but quite problematic work of Marilyn Strasser. I mean, as an anthropologist, I've been quite some wrestling with her stuff for decades. And of course, there, you know, out of not just ethnography and Papua New Guinea, but considerations of what's happening about surrogacy, donation, mm. etc. Mm. Very compelling interrogation of the ideas of inside things, etc. Mm. And I mean, it's wonderful to hear you talk about inequality because I think that her work on egg donation, surrogacy, etc., is completely oblivious to the kind of global political economy mm. of inequalities that you pursue. Mm. I really applaud you in that. But I suppose I'm sort of interested in something a bit more fundamental, which is how can we predicate that in that recognition that you're sort of imagining between a self and another, and I'm yes. sort of thinking of the end of the eye contact between the pillar and the victim. Yes. Does that mutual recognition, does that relation necessarily depend upon a relation of equality? Can we simply move mm -hmm. in that direction? And secondly, what do we do about, and you know, in some ways Kim raised this problem with her reference to spirituality, and, and I, I'm here thinking about some recent work of my colleague Kalpana Ram in, in India. Um, those kind of ideas of self, body, whatever, which are not um, presuming the notion of either the self or, or the body as bounded mm -hmm. in the way that... So I don't think we have to have... I mean, I'm absolutely with you on, you know, let's not talk about the private property of the body mm -hmm. and trespass relations, but even just this sense that the body ends at the edges of mm -hmm. our skin is in some places in tension with kind of ideas of the body as, you know, influenced by kind of entities from outside. And in fact, intention, I mean, certainly having worked in the Pacific, 
where a whole lot of you know illnesses or you know, all kinds of misfortunes can be seen to be kind of moving yes. between bodies. You know, this very idea of the boundedness of the body is as problematic as the boundedness of the notion of an autonomous, rational yes. self. Yes. So I've got you know some problems. I, I absolutely agree with you about you know the fact of of continua not meaning that mm. we can't make distinctions. Mm. Um, but I'm just having trouble in accepting the, that fundamental idea that recognition of our shared humanity doesn't necessarily a recognition of our shared quality. Yes, yes. Yes, well, I, first of all, I mean, it isn't. It's a route to it, right? Yeah. But the... the um, I mean, the, the point at which I've kind of thought most about that kind of range of issues is in terms of thinking about how my critique of body as property, my critique of the metaphor of property as kind of like this kind of building barriers against, mm -hmm. against others, keeping others out, how that relates to how you think about rape. Um, because, you know, with rape it does feel as though what you want is precisely a kind of sense of the securing of the body's boundaries, right? The securing of oneself against the kind of the the threat outside, and it's it's. Uh, I mean, one one of the chapters in the book deals deals with with rape, and, and there I kind of try to, I try to kind of think about how a critique of that kind of um, property and you know walls around oneself notion how that kind of connects with how we think about rape. And I do think that there's a kind of... I, I mean, I think in, in the ways in which people think about recovering from a, an experience of rape, which is very often in terms of reconnecting with the world, and, and the problem that very often uh, people, um, in a sense, that the, you know, the, the effect of rape is to make people kind of more and more tightly protective of their boundaries and that actually we don't on the whole think that that's a long-term solution that people need eventually to be able to kind of reconnect so I, I've kind of I've I mean I, it, so I, it seems to me that even in the context of rape where you might most want to assert not necessarily in a property language but at least assert a kind of a sense of uh, a notion of trespass a notion that you know you must not go beyond my boundaries. Uh, even there, it seems to me, one there's a kind of there's, there's a potential problem in those kinds of metaphors. So, so that would fit very much, I think, with some of the things that you're saying. But I, I've sort of found it um, quite nerve-wracking saying that in relation to rape, because I think the you know you have such a strong sense that you know the what one needs to do in relation to rape is precisely protect yourself against against intruders, right, which is a property kind of language. Um, but yes, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, being able to think about um, the body is not bounded. So, I mean, in a sense, that's a kind of, I mean, I take what you're saying as partly a critique of, I end up saying I'm against property, but I believe in bodily integrity, and what you're saying is that there are some problems with the notion of bodily integrity as well, to the extent that it it carries with it this uh, very bounded sense of the body. And, yeah, I mean, that's another area in which there are lots of kind of complications, I agree. 
sorry, one at the back. Thing. Do you think in places where the body's things are covered out of these biotechnology and other there should be recognition of the body as being properly sort of lost and strength in there? Or like I, I recognize consent in autonomy of their important. There's often often the laws in that area quite gray, and as a result, people that have possession of an interest in heart actually have possession of that body part and that's their property instead of well, I mean, I think I think there are some quite powerful arguments that people have made along these lines. Um, you know, precisely, I mean, that people make the, the case that if we were, if our ownership of our body parts, and mostly this is the kind of the so-called waste body parts that are then used by the big biotechnology companies as part of their research and patenting of you know, all kinds of uh, um, new procedures and so on. Uh, you know, there's quite a strong radical argument about, you know, what people need is the protection that property would give them in order for us to be able to determine what uses are made of various parts of our body after an operation and so on. And, um, I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I mean that's one of the kind of the... Uh, one of the lines of arguments that I try to engage with, in fact, in, in, the, in the book that I've, uh, that I've completed. And in the end, my position is that the people who argue this um, typically argue what we need is property as our ability to control the use of our bodies. We're not interested in property as enabling us to sell, right? We're not interested in that aspect of property. And we can separate those things out. And in the end, I'm sceptical about the extent to which one can make that kind of separation. So my, um, my resistance to the line that you're suggesting is that I think property as being able to establish control over the use of our bodies and thereby resist some of the power of you know, other organisations that kind of take advantage of our bodies, it seems to me almost inevitably to slide into property as... Uh, the capacity to put things on the market for sale, but but I, I mean I think that is a that is a co contemporary co compelling line of argument that is you know quite widely made for property. I mean it's, I don't in the end agree with it, but I think it's got a lot going for it. Question here. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to formulate this question the way I really wanted to. But in terms of ownership, <coughs> I'm just wondering if you could speak to. Um, I mean you raised the issue. Of rape and uh, the person who's been raped actually protecting their body from here on. But I'm just interested in your views in terms of ownership of, um, say, a very small child who has been sexually abused um, and grows up in a dissociated state. They actually have no relationship with their body. They can see uh, their body is an appendage just hanging on, but they don't own it at all. That's that sense. So, in your view, how, how would you view that body that's somehow floating about in the ether that happens to be attached to yeah. a being? Well, I suppose I would say that that is kind of that is a damaged way of, of relating to one's body because that's a kind of you know someone who's who actually is is not you know has not been able to 
to see themselves as an embodied self because of the experience, right? And and I think generally it's regarded within the within the medical profession as problematic when one has that particular kind of relationship to one's body and, and, a, and a very difficult challenge to see how you know how people manage to get beyond that to reconnect in a sense, reconnect with their bodies. Um, so so I, I mean I, I mean I see that as kind of in a sense um, in a sense further affirmation in a way of of the importance of selves as embodied and the um, in a sense the kind of the, the, the philosophical mind body dualism if we try to live it is actually very problematic it's not something that, that is a kind of comfortable place to be if you end up actually having to live in that kind of dualism I was just going back to the my idea and connecting it with what Margaret said yes. about the elimination of the body. Yeah. I think we've made some progress with that, with the notion of sexual harassment, because that's words coming from outside, but mm-hmm. we have actually acknowledged that those words sort of impacting on our sphere of work and sphere of sense of mm-hmm. And I think we have actually made a little bit of progress on that. So in the sense that that we can't create this kind of carapace around ourselves, we know that. But yeah. sexual harassment yeah. is yeah. not about my physical body, it's yeah. about the, the, yeah. the environment. Yes, uh, yeah. I, I'm just I'm fascinated by how many sort of senses of body are starting to come yes, into the Yes, yes, and it's, it's very much working with your hope that these, uh, these lectures actually draw people across very yeah. different disciplines. Absolutely, absolutely. But I wondered how much in your own sort of writing of the book you sort of found yourself thrown off by, by that in a way. I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me about your examples of um, prostitution and surrogacy is that you could also figure them as being about sex in some sense, so particularly mm-hmm. you know, sort of womb surrogacy or whatever. That, that there's a... Um, there's a sense in which these are very particular yes, examples yeah. where we have long histories of... Um, is a prostitution of shame and disgust associated with these kinds yeah, of bodies, yeah. and um, and in I mean it, you sort of go from that very traditional problematic mm. to the case of surrogacy, which seems so modern, and yet at the same time you could find also a long tradition of standing mothers, and you know mm-hmm. you know looked at the level of relationships again a very long sort of uh, tradition and history of thinking about these kind of questions. So. I suppose I'm wondering how far this notion of the body actually can hold together in a, in a sense yes, when we start yeah. to talk about body parts or we talk about intimacy or we talk about sex. You know, does it does it fall apart in some way? And and particularly on that question of intimacy, I'm interested in how you hold that in relation to your focus on property and labour and so forth because it seems to me you could give very different narrative versions of some of the um, topics you're talking about. I'm picking a lot of Almodovar's film, um, All About My Mother, for example, mm. which explores transplantation in the context of thinking about singularity and the threat of substitution mm-hmm. and how you know we experience ourselves in, in this very complex world of intimate relationships yes. that at the same time are public, culturally constructed relationships and how that is challenged too. So I suppose, I, I mean, it's a, it's a broad-ranging question, but I'm wondering how much you struggle to hold together a kind of focus on the body in writing. Yeah, I think I... Yes, is, is the uh, short answer. But, I mean, I, I, I definitely 
I mean, I didn't see myself, because I couldn't see myself, as doing a kind of a systematic phenomenology of the body and the different kind of meanings that are attached to the body in different kind of contexts. I mean, that's, I mean, apart from anything else, it's not where my kind of, mm. my skills lie. Um, but, so, so my focus all the time was about the ways in which questions of ownership and property, you know, or questions of mine, um, possession, do or don't figure in the ways in which people deal with different kinds of um, uh, practices in mm. relation to the body. So that that was the, that was the kind of the theme that, mm. that that held it together for me. And even there, um, actually, I mean, people people use that very uh, very very differently. So that in fact, uh, um, I mean, whereas in in I mean, I started with that kind of quote from the left libertarian, which kind of made it seem as though all of these practices are unified by the claim that this is my body, which is, and that claim that it's my body is what enables you to do all these various things. But actually, you know, I mean, I, the kind of, it's quite rare to come across interviews, say, with commercial surrogates in which they say things like, you know, well, my body is my property, and, you know, what I'm doing is kind of renting it out. Mm. Um, I mean, that actually isn't the language most of it. That people use, so that so that you know, it's not just that people have different kind of uh, people don't um, uh, don't use the same kind of ownership and property language in the different kind of contexts, and that that definitely came over uh, very clearly to me. And I kind of I did what you know, I mean, I I kind of tried to turn that to uh, advantage in my argument, mm-hmm. in the sense that kind of the uh, in a sense the the attempt to impose this kind of property and ownership model on on these very different ways in which we relate to our bodies actually it, it partly you know the, the, the miss the kind of the failure of fit uh, helps confirm both how inappropriate and I hope in the end how unnecessary that, that kind of those metaphors of property are but I think if you were doing a serious phenomenology of the body. I mean, all of the all of the points that you, you raise would, uh, would would lead you in very um, yeah very rich directions. Yeah. Do we have one final burning question? Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, how you think your what you've been talking about today has um, can, can practically help women in these sort of situations because um, what I'm struggling with is that given that we do live in a nice yes, yeah, world, yes, yeah. given that we do live in a world does eliminate women's choices about how they can sell their body just actually make it worse for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that's an extremely powerful point, and uh, uh, I, I don't myself think that you can go from a uh, critique of the ownership model to a set of policies in which you say uh, we must ban commercial surrogacy. Certainly don't think one should ban sex work. I think that actually doesn't help sex workers at all. Um, I mean, I think the actual policies that one comes up with need, as with all kind of policy uh, decisions, to be kind of carefully worked out in the kind of, you know, the context of, you know, what are the kind of the, um, you know, the likely um, unintended consequences of particular kind of policy choices. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, I agree with the implication of your question. Um, but first of all, I think that there's, there's a sort of surprisingly powerful, I think surprisingly powerful lobby 
building up for relaxing the current quite strong restrictions on markets in body parts. And I'm you know, very clear in my mind that that's something that should be resisted, right? Um, I think also that the kind of the, the development in terms of uh, surrogacy, of gestational surrogacy, where uh, the woman really is the womb, right? She's no longer providing the eggs, as was the case in early, early instances of surrogacy, has, has led to a real kind of um, a factory-type development of surrogacy, which is deeply problematic. Um, so, I mean, I think that the, I think the arguments... The policy implications I would derive are going to vary depending on the different kinds of issues. But I think that having um, being able to resist the lure of the property and ownership model uh, provides an important component in working out what are appropriate policies. But I think I think you're quite right in, su in suggesting, as I take you to be suggesting, that that simply going from that to you know, let's just have a kind of blanket ban on anything in which people are kind of trading in, you know, the use of their bodies is, uh, is, is, is not necessarily the appropriate approach. All right. Well, I suggest we call things to a close. There are um, some drinks and nibbles upstairs to feed your hungry bodies. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Anne. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.